Police say this Florida man warned them that his turtle army would destroy them. Officers in Brevard County say they received seven calls about a man disturbing the peace at three different locations. This Florida man was arrested after deputies say he slapped his sleeping girlfriend in the face with a cheeseburger and then kicked her down the stairs. This Florida man is charged with driving under the influence after allegedly driving his lawnmower into a police car in Haines City. I think journalists and police officers, as well as, of course, doctors who follow the Hippocratic do no harm. A Florida man chewed up the backseat of a patrol car after being arrested for cocaine possession, according to deputies. It's wrong to laugh at homeless people. Police say he climbed on top of playground equipment and started yelling in front of kids, telling them where babies come from. It's wrong to laugh at people who are mentally ill. A local man is locked up, accused of attacking swans at Orlando's Lake Eola. It's wrong to laugh at people who suffer from drug addiction. Your impulse should be to at best help them, at worst leave them alone. Florida Man. Like it or not, if you live here, the moniker could apply. But typically we know the designation is reserved for the most bizarre behavior by men and women living in the Sunshine State. And as it turns out, that behavior usually lands folks in jail. Bob Norman is a Florida journalist who has covered a range of issues for more than 25 years. He got a start at the news press in Fort Myers, just north of us in Lee County, and he cut his teeth there as a police reporter. One of the things I did every morning would, I'd call the sheriff's office. I had a good source there who could look through the, the complaints. And sometimes I would go down there and look through them myself. In Florida, public records laws make it easy to gather arrest information, which is partly why you come across a lot more Florida man headlines than you might stories about a Wisconsin man or a Delaware woman. It's interesting the process that you go through to find stories. Let's say you start with, oh, look, uh, a woman robbed a postal truck. It's like, that sounds like a story. She had a gun, wow, okay, that's probably a story. Oh, it was a toy gun, mm. She called herself God, she stole a random package and wandered the streets until the police came. Rather than type up something that reads, Florida woman robs mail truck with toy gun, Bob says he usually moves on from those stories, sensing that the people involved are likely struggling with mental health problems. Oftentimes, right after these stories come out, that person is Baker acted, and now they're being laughed at, which is, you know, it's, it's abhorrent. You know, that's one of the great principles of journalism is you afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, not the other way around. One of the worst things that a journalist can do is kick someone when they're down and when they have no power and when they have, you know, there's no reason to do so whatsoever. And that's what you're seeing over and over again with Florida Man. Some newsrooms can lose sight of those ethics. And in the digital age, clickbait breeds revenue. They need to get these hits and unfortunately, Florida Man is a huge, booming industry for web hits. There's a lot of Florida Man stories that are worthy of being told, responsibly must be told, um, you know, that involve death, that involve serious injury, property crimes, things that are 
normally newsworthy. I think it's it would be a crime not to cover a story where someone throws a live alligator into a Wendy's drive-through, for instance. I mean, you almost have to cover that. There is nothing wrong with funny stories, with quirky stories, you know, engaging in humor and, and even entertainment. I mean, that's part of covering the community. It's just when you're doing it at someone else's expense that doesn't deserve it. In May, Bob wrote a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review, taking media outlets to task for capitalizing on stories of men and women suffering from substance abuse and mental health issues. In Florida, the problem is compounded by a lack of funding at the state level. I mean, Florida is consistently at the bottom of healthcare funding per capita. Put on top of that, the federal Medicare funding rejected. The state didn't even accept billions of dollars in Medicare funding from the feds. You've got a state that isn't great on social services. Leave it at that. And that certainly doesn't help. Anywhere there's drug addiction, anywhere there's mental illness, you're going to have people doing crazy things. Full disclosure, I'm guilty of this myself. Before I started working for the Collier County Sheriff's Office, I was a newspaper reporter, and we wrote stories like this all the time. Sometimes we realized we were taking cheap shots, but most of the time, it felt like fair game. It wasn't until talking to people for this podcast that I understood the role mental health and substance abuse problems play in these outlandish stories. And suddenly, Florida Man headlines weren't so funny anymore. I think that that awareness that we're talking about needs to go to law enforcement and even up the chain to state attorneys and prosecutors. And I mean, ultimately, I mean, you're talking about mental uh, illness and the way that we deal with it. This season of the podcast is not about changing the way media operates. Instead, it's about highlighting a problem and showing you what our agency is doing to help folks with mental illness what we're doing to connect them to mental health services and divert them from our jails, and how our deputies make sure that they're taking their meds and that their homes have power and food, and why that's law enforcement's job at all. And it's about showing you how through all of that work, we're keeping people in need of mental health services out of jail and out of the headlines as a result. That's what we'll tackle in the next three episodes. And to start, We'll talk to someone who has been through all that and agreed to share his experiences with mental illness, with law enforcement, and the stability he enjoys today. Welcome to Season 2 of Sworn Statement, a podcast exploring local cases and public safety issues all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. The first episode of season two is called Florida Man Gets Help. Just a heads up, this episode contains one instance of foul language. Earlier this year, I sat down with a mother and son who agreed to talk about how the Collier County Sheriff's Office has ultimately helped with their family's mental health struggles. We'll call the son Jake. Jake has struggled with mental health problems for most of his life. As an Atlanta native, he moved to Southwest Florida after college to be with his family who had already relocated. 
These days, things are going really well for Jake. He's working a few days a week, he's keeping his house up, and he's spending time with his kids. But things were not always this good for him. Here's his mother talking about his childhood. In the, I think the third grade, and, and the teacher called me and said that he, he was not doing his work, and, and he didn't have, um, he, he was not comprehending what he was reading and doing, because he would, he, they would give him a problem, and he would, instead of, you know, for, in math particularly, instead of working out step by step, he just knew the answer. And it happened all the time. I mean, there was a test that they gave him uh, when he was about, about four, about four or five, and, and uh, they rattled off all these numbers. What's four plus five plus times six plus, you know, 12 minus 13. And at the end of all of this, this very long equation, he said 72. And the doctor said, only one other person has ever gotten that right. So his brain was calculating all that, <clears throat> just going through all the little tedious steps to get there was, was boring. Uh, and he didn't want to do that, and and he he immediately got things, but not. Yeah, in retrospect, not, there was a lot of lack of discipline. I mean, at the time, it didn't feel like that. I mean, I had plenty of structure. I was going to good school, but I mean, I, yeah, I never passed a class until military school, which was like ninth grade. I could never relax, and I had so much energy that it was just it was it was not able to like just sit there constantly and do work, you know. But I mean, I, I guess I was able. I just couldn't figure out how to do it. They just would try to counsel him about how to control his his impulsivity. He was very impulsive. How to control his impulsivity? Well, ADD, of course, that was. The, well, he, he was. Yeah. He was. He had ADD, ADD and, first, ADD yeah. Yeah, and was, hyperactivity were, yeah. were the, the definite <laughs> diagnosis. And so we said, okay, this that's what we're gonna, that's what we're dealing with here. Um, but it turned out to be a lot more than that. He was always getting into trouble. I know he was all constantly uh, acting out. And and um, and acting in ways that were that were not always pleasing. On the other hand, he was the cutest, funniest thing you've ever seen with this laugh that was infectious. You know, so you're 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 balancing these two as as he's growing up and trying to figure out what's going on here. You just don't know. But when it continues, and a little bit later in life, then you recognize there's something really wrong. And you would think that finding a doctor who would recognize your symptoms. And, and would be able to give you a diagnosis and appropriate medication would be the simplest part. It's the hardest part. Jake didn't want to share his official diagnosis, but he said he's gotten everyone in the book and none is correct. He was willing to talk about his symptoms, though. Anxiety, oh yeah, that's my most common thread. But uh, which spawn a lot of different things, you know? You can be anxious and you know, depending on where you're going, scenarios can become quite ridiculous. I mean, everybody there is there for you. They're only there because you're coming. They're, they're only these. Everything they're wearing is a costume. Everybody in public, they're only pushing. The, they just said action when you walked in the door. It's not always like that, but it can get like that very, very fast. And it all stems from anxiety. So, yeah, when I got to Florida State, it was definitely it was difficult for me to leave my dorm room. It was difficult for me to leave to go to class. I mean, I that was a, I mean there was no showering, no shaving. There was I mean that that was definitely probably the most one of the most because you're so lost at that point because you've never really been that far out, and so you don't recognize it as fake. You don't recognize anything is not real. Yeah, it's all real because it's come on kind of naturally. You didn't think it would end. 
So like I jumped out of a window at the third floor in the middle of a classroom, you know, you know, because you don't think it's going to end. Pretty soon after college, Jake was in and out of various hospitals in Atlanta and Massachusetts. That's what I'm saying about it's not about just a pill. You have to learn all these things through successes and failures. That is, you're going to feel better. You don't have to jump out the window. You know, that person isn't here for you. You're not that important. These people don't care about you. You know, it just takes a long time to learn how to manage that stuff in your mind and not act out. You know, um, yeah, it can, get, it can get challenging, obviously, you know, and, and, and that's where my behavior became socially aberrant. Was I mean, I've been doing stuff, I've been struggling with that since I was a teenager, but it just gets worse and worse, you know, as you get older before it plateaus for me around my, in my 30s, young, young thir early 30s, mid 30s. So it just got uh, to the point where sooner or later, you know, you, you, you act out to alleviate anxiety. That's all I ever was doing. And that, uh, all, I only got in trouble with the law at the times of my most intense stress. By 2012, Jake was living in Naples and working from home most of the day, handling taxes for a few clients and getting his kids off to school. He doesn't remember how it happened or why, but he ended up walking into a bank one day and passing the teller a piece of paper. If this story had a Florida man headline, it would probably be, Florida man kinda sorta accidentally robs bank. I don't remember much about any of that time. It was such a fast paced, it was just a, I don't remember the day, I don't remember much of any of it. I mean, I, I was able to repeat, I mean, I, I just remember getting caught up, you know, you get caught up in these energies and ideas and that catastrophic, you get caught up thinking this and, you know, it, it, things just aren't what they, you know, things are different than what they are, you know, so. For Jake, the robbery was a strange whirlwind of clashing realities. For the bank tellers and employees, it was absolutely real and it was terrifying. Today's date is March the... 14th. 14th. 13th. 13th, sorry. 2012. I'm Detective George Lom, ID number 2201. It's case reference 12-6996, a bank robbery at Fifth Third Bank. Person that being interviewed is... Raise your right hand. You swear and affirm the statement you're about to give is the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? I do. You can lower your hand now. You were working today in the Fifth Third Bank. Could you tell me what happened? I was finished with my previous customer as everybody else we have to work on every customer when I saw the guy on the lobby wedding I, 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 work on, I, I greet him first uh, welcome to Fifter he approached me real quick and I saw him with a piece of paper on his um, left hand folded but he opened it and pushed that paper to me and I said, read that quietly. The reading that he said in the note. Uh, the note was reading, was writing with pencil. He, he said, I had a gun, give me the, your money, only the top draw. And I was very nervous, so I did what he told me to do. Here's the weird part. That note Jake used, it wasn't a bank robbery note at all. It was a folded page of coaching notes from his kid's baseball game the night before. Whether the teller read the writing or realized it wasn't a demand letter is unclear. In initial reports, it says she didn't. But during her tape statement, which you heard, she says she did. Regardless, sliding the note across the counter that way with his index finger, that gesture made Jake's intent clear. 
And in various interviews, the teller says that Jake also verbalized his demand as he slid the note over. He said, just the top drawer. To be clear, Jake doesn't deny robbing the bank or asking for money, but he also doesn't claim to have walked in planning to do it. Unfortunately, I had the time to give the bank money uh, because I was concerned about security issues and um, my life. If you didn't catch that, the teller grabs money from her drawer for Jake, but is careful to include what the bank calls bait money. Bait money is used to trace bank robbers either through printed security numbers or with an exploding dye pack that stains cash. Jake gets his cash and walks out of the bank, then gets into his car and drives off, but not before a couple employees get a good look at him. The, uh, the individual that came up to you, could you describe him? Yes. He was um, skinny, not too tall, about between 33, 35 years old. He was wearing a, a white, baseball, white baseball cap and then a black t-shirt. And he speaks very fluid English, so I assume that he's a white American citizen and wearing sunglasses also. So, and I think he has a very light complexion. Detectives use the physical description accompanied by surveillance camera photos to alert the public and solicit tips. But before that happens, the dye pack explodes. Here's Jake talking to Detective Lom during his confession a few days after the robbery. The same day he robs the bank, Jake goes to his kid's school to pay off an overdue lunch bill with the stolen cash. Then he visits a client and pays back a small debt that he owed with the same bills. Deputies have circulated his photo by this point. His client also ends up piecing things together. It had red paint all over it. Okay. At least that's what he told me it was. It was noticeable and you asked him about oh, it? Oh yeah, it was very noticeable. What did he say? He told me that uh, he had been painting a mirror with his children and he got let the kids help do it and he got red paint all over him, his hands, all over the kids and he even got some on his calf. Okay. He showed his hands were clean though at this point, right? Yes, he I walked. asked him if he needed to use the Brillo that I used to take the paint off my hands and he said no, I'm, I got it all off. Yes, on the 11 o'clock news uh, there was a photograph about a bank robbery and it was real quick. I had just caught my eye and I yelled to my son, quick, come look, doesn't that look like And he says, oh my god, yeah. And by talking, I didn't really hear what they were saying, but we chuckled and said, oh, that couldn't be him. It couldn't be him. Right. And then we started thinking about it, you know, and nah, we said, no, it couldn't have been him. So your first impression when you saw the, just the still image on TV was, it's 
Yeah, yeah, it just, it looks like I'm the ball cap in that shot. I'm not laying all this out here for the sake of rehashing the crime, but I want you to understand that the crime was not well-planned or well-executed for that matter. So by the time detectives are interviewing Jake, they're already aware of his struggles with mental health problems, and they realize that those problems likely played a role in the crime. At the end of the interview, the detective delivers this gem, which if I didn't know any better, I might think was planted for me by someone who knew I was doing a podcast on deputies helping people with mental health problems. It's almost too good. Detective Lom is not just a good guy, although I'm sure he's that too. He also went through something called Crisis Intervention Team Training, a program that teaches deputies and first responders how to recognize the signs of mental illness and substance abuse and how to de-escalate situations with folks they encounter who are symptomatic and in crisis. Not all law enforcement agencies offer this kind of training. The CCSO sought it out. Sheriff Kevin Rambosk learned of the program about 11 years ago and immediately implemented it. Implementing CIT was the first of three major steps our agency has taken to help with the mental health crisis locally. I'll let the sheriff explain. 
I was first introduced to the training by a representative from uh, NAMI Collier County and the mother of a young man who somewhat regularly went into mental health crisis. And she was concerned that law enforcement would not be able to recognize mental health crisis versus a battery. And the more she explained about the ability of law enforcement to be able to recognize that circumstance, then de-escalate the situation so it wouldn't rise to the level of a violent crime or a crime with violence attached to it. I thought to myself, well, that would be really excellent training. And then I thought, you know, it doesn't have to be limited to mental health crisis. And in fact, law enforcement encounters a lot of situations where there are disturbances or a phrase amongst people. If law enforcement could learn how to de-escalate a situation, then there wouldn't be need for arrest. There would be more the potential that you could resolve whatever the circumstance was that you responded to. And maybe it wasn't even a mental health situation. In fact, more often than not, we're responding to other situations where people are frustrated, aggravated, um, acting out in some way. And if, if that can be de-escalated, then the potential for people getting hurt is lessened. Uh, deputies getting hurt is lessened. And citizen complaints on law enforcement for not handling a call in the way that a family or a friend might have believed it should have been handled, that would also be lessened. Sheriff Rambosk decided then that he would have every single deputy trained in the Memphis Model 40-hour CIT training course. To date, more than 600 deputies have gone through it. That's everyone on the road and in our jails. We've since extended the training to include civilian agency members, judges, attorneys, probation officers, and other county first responders, including fire and EMS. More often than not, throughout almost the more than a thousand people that have taken it, uh, the critiques have indicated that it is the best training that they have ever received. That just supports the whole reason why I thought it might be good I think we're seeing that today in, in not only the critiques, but more importantly, what we're getting accomplished out in the street. Eileen Strait is the director of Peer Support Initiatives at NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Collier County. When the agency implemented this training a little over a decade ago, NAMI began hosting the course. Part of the training, they do a tour of the Sarian Center, which is great for our folks because then they kind of get more comfortable with law enforcement, and law enforcement gets to see kind of the inside of what happens at our center and how people feel. They can make rapport with those folks, even our homeless folks, and maybe they've seen them a dozen times, but they see and hear what their needs are. Part of CIT training involves role-play scenarios which simulate how someone in crisis might respond differently to deputies than someone without a mental health problem. 
In these scenarios, deputies learn to de-escalate a situation using the proper verbal and physical cues. And they hone these skills by stepping into the shoes of someone with a mental health disorder, such as schizophrenia. This training video plays voices on a loop as an individual makes a purchase at a gas station convenience store. Where are you going? Look out! This is pointless. Mommy. <laughs> Even that kid knows you're stupid. In Everyone knows you're stupid. Don't go in there. Don't go Nobody in there. Nobody cares about you. Why do you even try? Why do you even bother? You're looking for Everything's listening to you. You don't deserve happiness. The wine bottles. See, they're laughing. She's talking. They're oh. looking at you. Everybody you laughs at you. Talking about you. Go ahead. Make you get some ice cream. You don't want Worthless. that. It'll make you fatter than you already are. Worthless. Pointless. Look out. All the alcohol. Trash. No, don't take that one. No, go over to the other one. Grab a wine bottle. Go ahead. A couple bottles of booze. Just drink it. Eat it. Look out. Passed out. These tracks were played on a set of headphones for a deputy who was then given simple math equations to solve. Of course, the task was made that much more difficult. And the lesson here is that some individuals with mental health issues have trouble complying with commands, but not because they're trying to be difficult. Deputies are then taught how to give simple directives, especially if they suspect someone is in crisis. In another presentation, Eileen does role plays with officers encountering women with PTSD. As a survivor of a violent sexual assault, she tapped into her own experiences. During their arrest or maybe a Marshman Act, law enforcement maybe put their hands on them and it triggered them and they went into back into the rape unbeknownst to law enforcement and then they were kicking and they were, were fighting. So that created more charges, more problems for them. Every one of those officers, when they did role plays with me, I'm sure sensed that this is something somewhat real. Um, so that's been a, a great, great experience for me. And I've had great conversations with law enforcement. And they said, yes, I've encountered this. And, you know, they kind of get the other side of what victims experience. Eileen has noticed a big difference in how deputies interact with folks following the training. They say that officers seem to be maybe more compassionate, take their time, have an understanding, but more importantly, have the right kind of conversation, ask the right kind of questions. Sir, you know, do you have mental illness? Are you taking medications? Are you not taking your medications? And I think that's probably one of the greatest things that have come out of the CIT training is just learning how to have those discussions with people in crisis. Lieutenant Leslie Weidenhammer is in charge of the CCSO's Mental Health Bureau. Yep, we have an entire bureau dedicated to these efforts. But more on that in Episode 3. Lieutenant Weidenhammer said CIT training offers more than just a rundown of signs and symptoms to look for. It also offers tools for deputies to use in any call that they respond to. It's verbal and it's not. It's, it can be your whole body posture. Um, it's being open. Many times it's hand placement. If I hold my hand up with my palm facing you in a stop fashion, that says one thing that may be threatening versus if I'm trying to talk to you and I have my palms open, facing up towards the sky as though I'm listening. So we know that only 7% of communication is verbal. We know the other 93% is all the other factors around us and our body language. So we train them on body language too. Rather than me standing here with my arms crossed 
my facial expression looking like I'm done with you and you know what are you talking about instead of looking at the person saying what's wrong with you we can say now I'm here to help you can you tell me what happened to you there's a big difference there's a difference in my voice inflection there's a difference in my body language with that there's a difference in what I said we are not diagnosticians, but we do know some signs and symptoms that we may see may be indicative of a mental health issue. And so maybe we need to slow things down. Maybe we need to talk quieter. Maybe we need to reduce the stimulation, the noise and everything around them. So we talk to the officers a lot about all of that for nonviolent encounter de-escalations. You can be compassionate, empathetic, and professional with everyone. I sat in on the first morning of a CIT training week this past summer to get a feel for what some of the sessions look like. So roll around the room, just quickly say your name, um, either your <laughs> position or where you're working, how many years you have on, and tell me something interesting about yourself. If you tell me long walks on the beach, <laughs> you're going to fail the class. No, I'm just kidding. We'll start over here. During that first morning session, there were 24 first responders in attendance. Most were from our jail or road patrol, and many of them were relatively new to the agency. But there were also a few guys from Henry County, a few firefighter paramedics, and a park ranger. They kicked off the week with an introduction from Judge Janice Martin, who oversees the treatment courts, including mental health court, then did a few low-key exercises. One of the exercises had participants guess the age at which someone first begins to show symptoms of certain mental health disorders. In another, they ranked the severity of debilitating diseases, both mental and physical. On one end of the spectrum was gingivitis. In the middle was asthma and moderate depression, and at the far end was schizophrenia and advanced dementia. And then severe vision loss, you could stand right there. Severe vision loss, then post-traumatic stress, post stress syndrome, paraplegia, severe chronic bronchitis or emphysema, so I think I, that other was. And then severe depression, and then you guys need to just switch, that's all. And at one point during the morning session, Jake pops in to share his story. I, I, I can say that it, it, I've had a struggle with mental illness, no doubt. Not everybody that does looks like the people we drive by on Bayshore, downtown Atlanta, or Chicago, or Philly. I mean, those two, you know, but, and, uh, and, and a lot of people that do look like that, unfortunately don't have the financial backing to go through the systems and come out and be able to, you know, uncomfortably share their story with you. So, I mean, I don't like sharing my story. It's embarrassing. I always worry about it getting back to my kids, but I definitely feel like I owe, you know, and that's why I do it. I was always good at getting up off the mat. I was a big Rocky fan, a big baseball guy, big like, you know, like, I, I don't really care how many, like, what part, part of the fun of I would look at, the only positive I could see of being in those down times, because they would get a lot worse than what I'm talking about now, was the opportunity to, do it right the next time, you know? And I, I was a glutton for punishment, no doubt. I would put myself back out there over and over and over again throughout the years. 
It all has come out to a very good place. I couldn't ask to be in a better place than I am right now. At the end of his talk, Jake took a couple questions from participants. CIT. Mm -hmm. Do you find it difficult to, to seek help without these programs? Well, with the, the two times I dealt with CIT officers, I can tell you uh, I didn't reach out to them. But they knew, but they knew to send the CIT officers. <laughs> and it definitely made a big, big difference. I, yeah, with CIT, what they did for me was you, they, they know who they're dealing with. I mean, I knew, because she had been to my house before. That's why they sent the same person, I would imagine. Um, but, uh, and the other thing was, is it's like, I've seen a lot of situations, I mean, it's, everybody's committing that, like once you're dealing with officers, you can commit so many more crimes if you're not in the right state of mind, you know? And that seems to me to be the one biggest difference between dealing with a CIT officer and not, is the one that's just trying to get you under control and into a safe place to the one that's trying to discipline you. I would, I guess if, I, if, if you're looking for a critique, I would just say go easy on the guys in the mental health unit. It's intense down there with the lights. It's, 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 it's hard for everybody down there. I know that, that's for sure. At the end of the week-long training session, these deputies will have learned how to spot symptoms of mental illness and how to ensure that those folks are pointed in the direction of the right services. It's training that Judge Martin says will come in handy all the time. The training that you'll get here is something that I personally use uh, every single day that I'm on the bench. The reality is that all of us working in criminal justice, in whatever capacity, if you're a dispatcher, if you're corrections, if you're road, if you're investigations, uh, or if you're in the court system, uh, you're going to come into contact with people who have behavioral health challenges and you will use the skills that you're going to get here. And we know it works. Jake is just one example. When we last left off with his arrest story, a detective had told Jake that even though he was headed to jail, his mental health problems would require different methods of treatment and rehabilitation. Jake would end up bonding out of jail about two weeks later. He's arrested then by the Naples Police Department in December of the same year for calling in phony prescription changes to his pharmacy. In March 2016, a little more than three years later, Jake is arrested for violating probation terms for the prescription fraud case. By then, judges know Jake pretty well, and they see how he struggled to stay out of trouble. So instead of sentencing him to a few years behind bars, where they know his condition won't improve, or just releasing him with a few more years of probation, they give him a chance at mental health court, and it changes everything. It was a huge turning point in my life. Obviously, I'd had a lot of success before then and a lot of failure. So even if they had just like, you know, Jesse Smollett'd me and dropped the charges, I, I, that would have been horrible. You know, I would have been floundering out there like it. So, yeah, the program was very, very important to me. In fact, the experience was so good for him, it's about the only thing compelling him to sit down at CCSO headquarters with me, a total stranger, to share all these intimate details of his life doing it because I feel like I owe mental health court. It's altruistic for me to try to give back in some way. And in a tight little closet that nobody sees me, this is about as comfortable as I get to give back. So it's a, it's a, it was a good program that, that put me in a routine. And, you know, the, the, I don't really have any complaints. You know, it's just a long process to get here, regardless if you're on medication, not on medication. It's, how, it's learning how to live your life with whatever you're carrying around, and mental health court definitely 
gave me the chance to do that. So maybe instead of Florida Man Accidentally Robs Bank, Jake's headline should be, Florida Man Makes Huge Mistake, Gets Help, Changes His Life. We've all been there. Next time on Sworn Statement, we'll talk about why time behind bars was not the answer. People don't get better in jail. It's the right thing for us to do as a community to say, okay, well, let's look at some of this. Yes, their behaviors were such that brought them into the jail, but is there something different that we can do with this? Sworn Statement is a production of the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill. Listen wherever you find podcasts.